Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Kavya Navarthi, and I'm a 25 at Dartmouth College. Today, I'm excited and honored to be joined by Sonali Chakravarti, a professor of government at Wesleyan University, whose work focuses on questions of citizenship, the law, and democratic institutions. Professor Chakravarti is the author of two books, Radical Enfranchisement in the Jury Room and Public Life, and Sing the Rage, Listening to Anger After Mass Violence. She's visiting Dartmouth today to deliver a lecture entitled, How Woke Can a Juror Be? The Jury in the Chauvin Trial, Critiques of Law Enforcement and a New Model of Impartiality. Professor Chakravarti, it's an honor to have you joining us today. I'm really happy to be here. So to begin, uh, much of your work focuses on the importance of the juror's role. Your book is called Radical Enfranchisement, and you argue that juries are an essential part of the democratic process. So I was wondering if you could begin by sharing more on the importance of the juror and you know, maybe what folks might typically miss when assessing the juror's role. Yeah, thank you. Um, when we think of the term enfranchisement, the first thing that comes to mind is voting. And of course, like that is the kind of cornerstone of democracy and the way we make our voice heard through representatives. Um, but the other part of enfranchisement is uh, being a juror. And that and being a juror is not about um, choosing a representative to make decisions for you, but actually being the one in the room uh, to make decisions about someone's fate, some, about someone's punishment. Um, and uh, it's the only place in political and legal life where every Every person in the room uh, decision matters. You know, if if you are the one juror who says guilty and everyone else says not guilty, like that's a hung jury. You know, the same with with the opposite. And so, um, to be a juror, some people see it as a burden. They don't want to go to jury duty, but it's also a sign of respect. It's a sign that your 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 government believes that you're capable of making you know complex and sophisticated decisions about what to do when a law is broken. And um, and so my, I call my book you know, radical enfranchisement because I think when you understand how much power a juror has, you also understand how much power individual citizens have in relation to the law. That they are the ones who ensure that laws are enforced fairly. And if they don't like a law, there there are many things that they can do about that, including when they're a juror and and someone is uh, is being accused of breaking that law. Um, uh, they can be thoughtful in how that that law is applied. Um, but also being a juror helps you understand when and how to practice civil disobedience if you want to. Um, when is it appropriate to, to not follow the law in, in a thoughtful way? And what are the costs and consequences of that? Um, so to be radically enfranchised means that you truly understand the power you have as an individual to both um, uh, kind of further the aims, the democratic aims of the law, or resist the law when that's necessary as well. Right. Yeah. So jumping right into your, your talk, I think a lot of what you just spoke to in terms of you know, when jurors might might disagree with, with what's happening or not. Um, so you wrote an article for The Atlantic um, titled The Chauvin Trials Jury Wasn't Like Other Juries. And in that article, you discuss how, you know, most of the jurors interviewed were familiar with the Floyd case, and many of them had seen uh, the video of his death. So, you know, I think that kind of sheds light on this debate of how juror impartiality is, is changing in, in this day and age. So, you know, can you discuss how you think um, impartiality is being redefined and how it can be navigated within cases of such national importance like the George Floyd or Derek Chauvin case, excuse me. 
Yes. Um, so as, as you mentioned, that cases that have a lot of publicity um, are very difficult to try, right? Because um, um, most jurors who come in the room uh, for jury selection have heard about those cases. And so there are two things that a judge can do in that situation. One is that they can move the case to a different area. Um, and so they try to get people who are not as closely connected, who don't know the, to, who don't know the neighborhood where the crime took place. Um, but, it, but in a way, this is not what the you know, founders and the designers of the Constitution wanted. The Sixth Amendment right to a jury is to have a fair and impartial jury in the place where the crime took place. And this is because part of what jurors are supposed to do is they should understand the dynamics of a, of a locality, what happens in that specific place. And only jurors can, in ordinary people, can shed light on that. Like, you know, judges, lawyers, police officers, they don't know what it's like to be an ordinary person walking around uh, that, that place. So keeping uh, um, a, a trial where the crime uh, was committed is a really important part of uh, the process. And the judge in the Chauvin case decided to do that and held the trial in, in downtown Minneapolis. Um, but then the other part of the, the, the issue when it's a high publicity case, like you mentioned, is that people might already have opinions uh, um, about the case. And, um, and I think the way to navigate that, and we saw it in this case, is to really ask people to speak openly about what they, what, how they responded to the video of George Floyd's death, what are their impressions of Derek Chauvin, what are their impressions of George Floyd. Um, you, as you noted, like it's not, it's, George Floyd isn't on trial, but, um, uh, but it, it's important to, to understand how the jurors understood him. Um, uh, so that we get a complete picture of how they understand the uh, the case. But what I'm arguing happened in the Chauvin case and is important for future trials is that there was much more open discussion about patterns of racism um, in police violence, patterns uh, of racism in, in, in sort of the law more generally and in everyday interactions um, in, in society. So uh, the idea that um, there's systemic racial discrimination in, uh, in American life was spoken about in many different ways. There were a lot of different questions on the jury questionnaire about this. Um, it, it, some, some of them were in relation to the incident, some of them were just more broad uh, questions. And what, uh, what came out was that um, jurors of all different backgrounds, black and non-black jurors, um, uh, sort of acknowledged that, that, that even though we, we wish it weren't the case, that racial dynamics play a big role in you know, police citizen interactions. And, um, and jurors said that they understood that, but the judge made sure they understood that in this case, um, Derek Chauvin deserves a fair trial and should get all the protections that any defendant gets. He is not, you know, he is presumed innocent. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, and I think just balancing these two things, that there can be a pattern of racial discrimination and someone can get a fair trial is, is what I'm arguing should be seen as a new model of impartiality. And some people might be like, well, isn't that already, you know, already the case? Like, don't, don't we already do that? But what I found in my research is that oftentimes uh, jurors, especially black jurors, are um, excused from um, being a juror when they uh, express um, uh, you know, observations about racial discrimination or even saying that we know that there are you know, disparities in how black defendants and white defendants are treated. And so it becomes it becomes um, uh, the basis for jurors be, um, being removed from jury duty rather than um, them being allowed to serve by saying yes I, I know this about the world but I can also be a, a fair juror. I think the more we say that these two things can coexist, the more likely it is that we'll get um, juries that are more representative of where Americans are at right now in their understanding of racial discrimination. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm really interested in this issue of 
kind of the, you know, peremptory strikes of uh, jurors and, you know, this issue that you're talking about of, um, you know, discriminatory, discriminatory treatment of jurors. So um, I want to actually read a brief excerpt from, from your article um, on a, a change in, in state procedures. So you write, now, according to Washington's General Rule 37, objections to peremptory strikes will no longer be restrict restricted to instances of purposeful discrimination by the attorneys. Rather, a judge must consider whether an objective observer would view race or ethnicity as a factor leading to the peremptory strike. This change opens up the possibility of a judge recognizing implicit biases in the use of peremptory strikes and draws the judges and attorneys attention to the composition of the jury as a whole. A judge must now pay heed to the ideal of a racially diverse jury through the fiction of an objective observer, one who would presumably be concerned if jurors of color kept being dismissed either for marginal reasons or for reasons stemming from the history of policing in their communities. So, you know, this passage obviously hits on everything that that you just mentioned, but you know, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on what you think the implications of, of such a change might be, whether you foresee these changes um, kind of proliferating around, uh, you know, several states and, um, you know, maybe what some of the challenges might be in, in implementing a change like this. Yeah, no, that's, and thank you for bringing that up, that like um, Washington State was the first mover on this. It, it understood that just um, kind of assuming goodwill, that saying like asking attorneys basically not to be racist and how they use peremptory strikes and asking judges to um, to determine that is not working. Um, and to, uh, because, you know, as, as you know, Justice Thurgood Marshall, you know, said long ago, sometimes attorneys don't even realize themselves that they're acting in a racist way. They think that they're dismissing someone because they said they, you know, did something for a racially neutral reason. But but actually below that, um, they really feel that it'd be better for their client if there were no black jurors. Um, so I think the, the Washington state um, a change um, is kind of taking it out of that realm of trying to read people's minds and, and uh, saying that they were purposely discriminating and more just, you know, saying, and I, and I agree with this, is that um, the court should have an interest in a racially diverse jury. And so if there are patterns happening in the jury selection process that and we don't even know exactly what's causing them, but if all the black jurors are getting getting picked off, um, um, that we, we need to stop that. that um, and, um, and so that to use that language of an objective observer would see that like there's a problem here, that it, the jury pool shouldn't look like this, um, I think is a, is a move in the right direction. Um, you know, as a political theorist, the language of objective observer like raises some, you know, uh, flags for me, like uh, what, you know, is that a proxy for, you know, a certain worldview and things like that. Um, but um, what, what I do appreciate is that it's a way to um, uh, to, to basically say that we all, that that um, having a racial adversary is not good for the you know prosecution in some cases, good for the defense in other cases. We just say it's good for the court itself. That the judge wants that, both attorneys should want that. Um, and you know, one thing I find interesting is that even as the Supreme Court has moved in a more conservative direction in the last few years, um, jury cases have been uh, being upheld by with conservative majorities in a sense of um, you know a, a case um, Curtis v. Flowers, which was about um, discrimination uh, against a black defendant who was tried with an all-white jury, and um, a juror in that case was a black juror in that case was was found to be improperly dismissed, and the case was um, remanded, um, and and that was. 
was that opinion was um, authored by Justice Kavanaugh. So we even have conservative justices saying like the jury is really important and racial discrimination um, uh, against jurors, um, you know, just can't hold that like once you uh, gut the jury system of the integrity, like the rest of the legal system is going to fall. So even though not that many cases go to jury, like for Americans to believe in the legal system, we need to have a fair process for selecting jurors. And right now, because so because there's so many ways in which um, uh, black jurors are discriminated against, would, uh, we have a problem with that. Right. So I want to return to this discussion of objectivity and, and impartiality, particularly in the context of you know nationally prominent um, cases. Uh, so the title of, of your talk today is "How Woke Can a Juror Be?" and you know this word "woke" is is thrown around a lot these days. So I'm really curious as to how you would define it. Um, would you characterize wokeism as a grassroots phenomenon or more of a privilege promoted by the few? And in what ways does wokeism play out in real legal proceedings that have tangible implications on people's lives? Good. Yeah. Oh, thank you for, for uh, calling me out on that. I wondered if, if like, if, you know, I would kind of give it, yeah, the, the, the title might get me into a difficult spot. You know, in some ways with the, the calling that I talk, how woke can a juror be, I wanted to both embody the skepticism from someone who, you know, thinks that, you know, uh, wokeism is, um, you know, is, is an extreme position that, um, you know, especially young people are, you know, too quick to see racism everywhere and to attribute things to racism. So I wanted, I, so in my, in my head, I could see that, you know, like a skeptic saying, how woke can a juror be? Like, uh, you know, you can't, like, obviously they can't be a good juror and also be what, you know, what, what's considered woke. Um, but also I'm, I'm, um, I'm kind of going back to an earlier iteration of the word woke, which meant um, being aware of the empirical realities around um, racial discrimination in this country. Like being able to say like, we have, you know, this is the history of police, policing and these are the disparities in sentencing. And these are the ways in which black defendants are treated differently than, than white defendants. Um, and so, and, and it's not an ideological position. It's it's based on you know empirical and sociological research. Um, and uh, so um, so in that way, wokeness I'm also taking to mean um, understanding the salience of racial dynamics in American life and being able to talk about it you know candidly. Um, but um, uh, but I think I also want uh, you you wa wanted to draw attention to um, uh, to. Uh, you know, young people who consider themselves um, uh, you well versed on these issues, um, and I want to tell them that, like, even if you are highly critical of the legal system, and even if, let's say, you are you consider yourself an abolitionist, uh, you know, um, or someone who wants to defund the police or anything like that, like, think of whether you might also be able to be a good juror. Like, can you also take seriously what you need to do um, to make sure that the defendant gets a fair trial? Um, because I I read an article by a defense attorney once. Um, who uh, in the last few years, who said that he was really disappointed that so many young people were coming in and saying, like, I don't trust the legal system at all. Like, I would never believe police officers, you know, like the, the entire system is racist. And um, and he thought that they actually were smart, you know, like, um, uh, you know, aware people. But by saying that um, on the, you know, what, what during Boadir, um, you know, the, the interview part of jury selection, you, the judge couldn't seat them. They were, you know, they were kind of so interested in, in showing their position of uh, criticism against the legal system that they weren't open to the other responsibilities of being a juror. Um, and so part of what, what I see my message as is to people, you know, say on the left, 
left who think like I'm too critical to be a good juror. I would say you can be critical, like hold that part, but also think about um, isn't it important to have uh, jurors who take their role seriously and who represent a wild, wide spectrum of political opinions. And so don't, you know, don't think that, you know, rejecting being a juror is one way to express you know, how woke you are. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think another thing, maybe some of those those critics you're you mentioning might bring up is that there's perhaps a need to reconcile today's sort of, you know, mass movements, right, national level movements, even international movements. Um, and, you know, also the media's increasing role in swaying public opinion with, you know, diversity of thought and, and impartiality. Do you see any need to, to reconcile those two things? What do you mean by reconcile those two things? I think sort of balance, you know, mass movements again with um, impartiality. Do you right. think there's kind of a tension between those two things? Yeah, and I think, and, and I think what, um, you know, thinking about this has led me to is that impartiality is always contextual, right? So being fair as a juror is different than being like fair with your friends or being a fair umpire in a game or being fair as a journalist, right? So so I think we should, we should go back to thinking that like each realm of, you know, kind of human life has its own version of impartiality. And, and so being a juror is a very specific one, you know, and, um, and so it's a type of code switching for everybody. No one is like naturally a juror. You like when you walk, you know, I, I joke that I think, um, you know, jurors maybe should wear robes, uh, just like judges uh, wear robes, because like, you really are doing something different than you do in everyday life. And like, we maybe when you put on the robe, you realize that like, I'm, you know, I'm caveat still, but I'm also like, uh, you're a juror. And that means I have to take these other things more seriously. And I have to second guess my own prejudices and assumptions, even though I think I'm, you know, smart about certain topics. Um, so I think we all have to go through that change when we become jurors. And I think similarly being a journalist, you know, is a different is a different role than being a student or being an activist. Or, um, and so, um, so, uh, so I think that um, with all these social movements and also with the people's desire to kind of indicate their political um, affiliations in different in public ways, um, I think we need more discussion of what impartiality means in ev in every different context. And so, I'm interested in judges being more clear about what in, what impartiality means given this moment that we live in right now, which, where um, uh, you know uh, racial discrimination is. Um, it like is just is understood to be pervasive and we're talking about it more and we have this you know we're in the middle of a new civil rights you know movement uh, you know around it um and so it, rather than remaining silent on what impartiality means or thinking that like it's somehow it's obvious right like oh like either you're impartial or you're not like everyone knows it um let's kind of have a more clear system for like you know like answer these questions and then we'll tell you like uh, you know if whether you can be a, you know a, a fair juror in this case right yeah so that leads uh, really nicely into my final question. Um, so, you know, I'm a college student. Many of our listeners are, are also college students. Um, you know, we have yet to, to serve our, our jury duty, but, you know, jurors are, of course, ordinary citizens like you and I. So I was wondering if you could comment on sort of the civic skills necessary to, to be an effective juror and, um, you know, what you believe the, the key responsibilities are, what, what advice you can, you can give to, to us. 
Yeah, no, thank you uh, for that. Um, I mean, one thing that, that um, we saw during the Chauvin trial that'd be a lesson for you know, uh, your listeners or people like you is that when you want to serve as a juror, you ask, answer questions differently. And the judge can see that, the attorneys can see that, and it, and it, um, and it works a lot better. And, you know, and what we noticed in the Chauvin trial is that um, many people um, understood the, the gravity of this case and, you know, and, um, and wanted to serve. And so that just, you know, it made it easier to get a more diverse um, uh, jury pool. So when you get your summons from jury duty, um, uh, you should be like, you know, eh, you know, maybe it's not the best time or it's you know, a little bit annoying to have to go. But like, if you say like, actually, like, you know, this is a really important thing. And, and, and you should also know that most jurors uh, find the experience to be a positive experience. They leave with um, a, more of a sense of the integrity of the legal system. It doesn't mean that there aren't problems. It doesn't mean that you have to believe you know that it's doing everything right, but you. But most jurors leave believing that actually, like the you know the the defendant is is, is being treated fairly, um, and um, they're happy to be a part of that. We know that jurors when they after jury service, they're more likely to vote in the next election. They're more likely to pay attention to the news. It just kind of awakens you to um, uh, the political and legal process in a different way. Um, uh, you know, for example, one of the people who served in the jury in um, in Bill Cosby's trial in Pennsylvania um, uh, was 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 so struck by the statute of limitations on rape charges that she she became involved in uh, you know a movement to change that in the state um, so it just like it, it allowed her to see her own power as a citizen but also like she found a, an issue that she you know she connected with and she believed in um, so I would say that, like, allow yourself to be open to this, uh, this responsibility. And, um, and then also just know that, yeah, that this is it's the most demanding thing we're asked uh, to do as citizens. And it's important that we get a wide range of people um, uh, serving as jurors. Great. Well, thank you so much, Professor Chakravarti. Again, this is Rocky Talk, and I'm Kavya Navarthi. Um, thank you again so much for your time. It's an, it's an honor. Thanks, Kavya. podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.